Uh, so First City Church exists to glorify God by making disciples, planting churches, and cultivating spiritual renewal through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that mission to make disciples, why we exist, comes from Christ himself. So at the end of Matthew 28, Jesus commissions his disciples with these words. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Jesus tells us to go and make disciples. We claim that for ourselves, but we also go and teach others to be disciples. What does that mean? How do you define that? What comes to mind when you think about walking as a disciple personally or instructing someone else to follow Jesus? What are you going to point them to? You see, if we don't have a clear definition of what it means to be a disciple and make disciples, then using this word disciple just becomes empty churchy dialogue, just kind of becomes this little catchphrase we throw around. Or worse, we can fall into one of two dangers. We can be shallow in our understanding of what it means to be a disciple. So we can have a very shallow understanding of what it means to follow Christ, an immature understanding, or which is just another form of immaturity, we can become legalistic and start adding rules and and burdens and and sort of add these man-made rituals to say, this is what it means to follow Jesus and has nothing to do with what what Scripture teaches and everything to do with man-made rules. So we start tacking things on. So no matter what the, the problem may be, whether it's empty sort of churchy dialogue or having an immature and shallow understanding of follow Jesus or being legalistic, the way out of that is allowing God's word to define what it means to be a disciple, which brings us to the gospel of Matthew chapters five through seven, what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. So this sermon is the first of five sermons or discourses of Jesus recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And the sermon itself is Discipleship 101, so to speak. In it, Jesus defines for us what it means to follow him and what it means to teach others to follow him. And so in in this introduction, briefly, I want to give a little bit of an overview of the Sermon on the Mount by answering three questions. The where, the who, and the what. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew 5. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2 here. This is what it reads. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. So first, the where. So the text isn't precise on where exactly Jesus gives this sermon. There's no specific geographical data The traditional answer is that it was probably somewhere in the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, somewhere between Capernaum and Gisenaret. If you don't know where that is, no worries. I don't know where that is either. And that Jesus went up on a mountain to teach. This is not a throwaway detail, though. This is a very important detail. Because within Scripture, we see when the Lord rescued Israel from Egypt, and he gathers them together as his people, he meets with them on a mountain. When Moses receives the law, the authoritative instruction for God's people, he receives that instruction on a mountainside. And so like Moses, 
Jesus is giving God's people God's word. But Jesus is also unlike Moses. See, it says in verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them. Moses received revelation from God and passed it to the people. The scribes, when they would teach people the word of God, they would open the word of God and teach as one, hey, this is what God has said. Jesus isn't receiving revelation. Jesus is speaking with his own authority. Jesus is giving revelation. He carries an authority far greater than Moses. He is God in the flesh, giving his people his own word. And this is represented by Jesus going on a mountainside and sitting and opening his mouth. So that's the where. The who. The direct audience of Jesus' teaching are his disciples. So if you could kind of picture Jesus sitting on a mountain, and then you have the 12 disciples kind of in a semicircle around him, and he's instructing them. But it's not just the disciples who are there. There are crowds that have gathered. And so if you kind of think of large crowds sort of kind of on the outskirts, listening in on this conversation Jesus is having with his disciples because they're curious. So the implication for this is, for us today is this. One, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Sermon on the Mount is to you. If you are one who is, doesn't claim to follow Christ, but you're curious, maybe you're, you're wondering what this Christianity thing is all about or who Jesus is, Well, Jesus is speaking for you as well. He's saying, hey, listen in as I instruct my disciples and you can know what it means to follow me, the one who holds all authority. So that is the who. And then the what. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a kingdom ethic, what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, what it means to follow him as his disciple. So Jesus is no mere earthly teacher. He is God in the flesh, And in the Sermon on the Mount, he speaks with complete authority as he directs our thoughts and our emotions and our attitudes and our desires. As he directs and instructs how we engage our marriages and our relationships with one another. As he instructs and directs how we use our power and how we use our money. As he instructs and directs how we pray and how we worship and how we live on mission and serve in this world. So Jesus is speaking authoritative truth that we are called to believe and submit to. And in the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, verses 3 through 10, what Ben read for us is known as the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are a series of blessings pronounced over those who are part of the kingdom of God. Or to put it another way, the Beatitudes describe the type of person who will receive the blessing of the kingdom. And our focus this morning will be to see that the first thing the Beatitudes reveal to us is this, the blessing of the kingdom comes to those who long for the kingdom. In other words, disciples, to be a disciple means you long for the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. There's a cry in our hearts. I want to experience the kingdom of God. I want to be a part of that kingdom. As we sang, come Jesus Kingdom come, come Lord Jesus. We long for God's rule and reign. And so we're going to look at the first three Beatitudes this morning, which tells us what it looks like to long for the kingdom. And so for those who long for the kingdom, they are poor in spirit, they mourn, and they are meek. So let's first consider what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, if you are given a microphone 
and told to step up to that mic and cast a vision for a kingdom, what would be the first thing that came out of your mouth? What sorts of things would you say, hey, this is the first thing coming out of my mouth, most important thing, here's the vision for a kingdom, what would you say? We go through this every four years, so to speak, in this country. Not necessarily a vision for a kingdom, but certainly a vision for a nation. And what comes out of people's mouths every four years when we decide who is going to be the president of this country? What sort of things do they say? What kind of vision do they cast? Well, there are plenty of promises of wealth and prosperity, promises to take one disenfranchised group and to give them more power and opportunity. There's vision casting for national greatness and international prominence, more prosperity, more wealth, more power, more security. So much of the vision casting for the kingdoms of this world have nothing to do but wealth and power. And when Jesus steps forward and declares in verse three, the first thing that comes out of his mouth is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You just have to put yourself in that moment and just can imagine people thinking, what did he just say? Say what, Jesus? Blessed are the poor the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Look, kingdoms don't belong to the impoverished. Kingdoms don't belong to the homeless person living on the side of the road. Kingdoms belong to the powerful, the wealthy, the strong, the ones with the money and the influence. And so for Jesus to step forward and the first thing that he says about his kingdom is blessed are the poor in spirit. He's cutting across the grain of expectations 2,000 years ago and for us today. Look, for all the talk in this country about being inclusive and checking our privilege and pushing back on discrimination, our culture still breathes the air of power and status and wealth. It is constantly one group fighting for power or more power against another. In church, we need to own how we have cozied up to power and wealth and prestige and status ourselves as if these things bring the kingdom of God. We need to own how we have allowed the American dream and American exceptionalism define for us what the kingdom ethic is. Look, these are incredible blessings from God. Spoke about that this summer. The economic and political freedoms that we have and opportunities we have are wonderful blessings, but they are not a kingdom ethic that Jesus builds his kingdom on. And America is not the kingdom of God. The ethics of the kingdom regularly cut against the American dream and American exceptionalism. And so if Jesus's words don't challenge us, don't ruffle our feathers, don't kind of throw our expectations off a bit, we're not listening and we're not submitting. Now, to be clear, Jesus isn't speaking strictly in economic terms. Though there are economic implications, but that's a sermon several weeks from now. Jesus is using the state of the economically poor to illustrate something, to illustrate the spiritual state of those who belong to the kingdom. So as theologian D.A. Carson notes, scripture identifies the poor, the material po- materially poor, 
as those who have, because of sustained economic privation and social distress, have confidence only in God. So this image of the economically poor who are destitute and they have nothing to cling to and nothing to trust in but the Lord himself. No money, no status, no wealth, no power. It's only the Lord. And so it is this image that Jesus is pulling on. And so like the materially poor, the poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual poverty. They know they are spiritually bankrupt because of their sin. They know they are unworthy to stand before a great and holy God. They have nothing to commend themselves, nothing, no work that they can show off, no power, no status, nothing to bring to the king and say, hey, I belong in your kingdom. They see themselves as poor, destitute beggars who cannot earn any favor with God. And here's the booger about being poor. It's unstable. It puts you at the mercy of circumstance. You lack stability. You lack status. You have little power to be able to control your circumstances. Your identity is lowly. Ah, but kingdoms offer stability. Kingdoms bestow wealth and status and power and control. Kingdoms give us an identity. And so we don't like feeling unstable. And so we will build our kingdoms in our homes, in our jobs, in our neighborhoods, in our relationships, carving out space to find stability through power and status and wealth and success. We can even use religion as a means to gain identity and power and status and success. We can use religion and our good religious works to build a kingdom that says, hey, look at me. Look at the stability that I have. And Jesus challenges such kingdom building. His world breaks in and says, yeah, that's a kingdom, but it isn't mine. And and he comes in and he says, if you are trying to build a kingdom through power and status and success and wealth, If you're trying to earn your place and work your way into the kingdom, then let me stop you there. For the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. The kingdom belongs to those who acknowledge that they have no foot to stand on, that they are utterly and completely helpless. Jesus comes in and he says, the kingdom of God belongs to those who know There is no stability to be found here, and so I long for the stability of the kingdom of heaven. And here's the good news of the gospel. By acknowledging our poverty, by acknowledging that we cannot earn our way into the kingdom, we cannot earn favor with God, we cannot build stability through our good works or through our status, through our success, through our money, by acknowledging that we are completely bankrupt and in need of God's grace and mercy and favor That's where we gain stability. In pronouncing blessing on the poor in spirit, Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The gospel is good news for you who are poor in spirit this morning. If you feel the weight of your sin if you feel the weight of your spiritual bankruptcy, if you recognize you are nothing but a beggar hoping for some crumbs, if you recognize there's nothing good in you, there's no works that you can do, that all you see is just the wreck that is your soul, 
your rebellion, your pride, then I have good news for you. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is yours if you will come to him and bring all of that poverty, all of that bankrupt, sinful pride and receive his grace and his forgiveness. So disciples of Jesus are poor in spirit and they also mourn. Jesus says in verse four, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Disciples of Jesus see the brokenness of sin and the pain within themselves and in their world and it grieves them. They grieve at the pride and the anger and the fear and the lust and the anxiety and the selfishness that resides in their own heart. They grieve over the sickness and weakness and brokenness of their bodies. They see the oppression of governments. They see economic oppression and greed. They see broken families. They see racism. They see physical and sexual abuse. They see the horrors of abortion and sex trafficking, and it grieves them. It grieves them because they know this isn't how God created the world, and that sin has corrupted what was made beautiful and good. So this raises the question, what do you do with the pain and suffering and brokenness of this world? Perhaps you can identify with Richard Dawkins, And this pain and suffering leads to an expression of cynical anger. This is what Dawkins writes about our world in River Out of Eden. The total amount of suffering per year in the natural world is beyond all decent contemplation. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces, and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Look, you don't have to be an atheist like Richard Dawkins to feel this sometimes. Like you look at the way the world is broken, you look at the suffering, you look at the things that even frustrate your own life, and you can start going, is there any point to it? Is there any purpose to it? What is going on? Why does it seem that the righteous suffer and evil men prosper, as the Psalms proclaim? And it's very easy for us to look at that brokenness and get angry, to to see that and just get mad and, and resort to this outburst of anger, when you realize you can't control anything, when you realize things don't fall into place as you hope, and so we rage, we get cynical, and we can sort of resign to seeing the world as having no purpose, and and God, if he's there, is sort of indifferent to us. How many of us, when we look at the brokenness of the world, go to anger? Man, if I had one of those big foam fingers, I would be doing this right now. This is me. Oh, when I feel the weight of my own brokenness, when when the brokenness of this world butts up against my expectations and what I try to accomplish and it doesn't happen for me, I get mad. But I wonder, many of us are probably afraid to mourn because we fear there will be no comfort. Because mourning, too, puts us in this unstable, uncomfortable ground. So we're afraid to mourn because we believe if we acknowledge that pain, that pain is going to swallow us whole. I mean, how many of you in here 
fear that if you were to start crying, you wouldn't stop. We're afraid to mourn because if we acknowledge it, it hurts and we feel uncomfortable and it's unstable. And the tragic thing is, is we end up bypassing true comfort for cheap substitutes. We bypass true comfort for just merely being comfortable. And there is a big difference between comforted and being merely comfortable. Seeking to be comfortable is a means to avoid pain, to numb ourselves to the brokenness around us. Ordering our life so that the pain of sin and brokenness in our world cannot make a mess of things. And so we go to not only anger, but we chase money, we chase relationships, we pursue pleasure, sex, jobs and career, entertainment, drugs, alcohol, anything to keep life comfortable. We can even use religion. How, how often do we run to our good religious deeds and, and view religion as a way to, hey, I just want to numb myself to the pain, so I'm just going to focus on all the positive stuff in Scripture. Just on all the, the good things, all the things that talk about blessing. But here, Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn. And so it shatters our religious attempts to construct this false sense of happiness and escape. Jesus doesn't let us use Christianity as an escape. Blessed are those who mourn. It's been said that Christianity is a crutch. Something for weak people. Maybe someone has said this to you. Maybe you've heard this argued. But I would ask, what is the chasing of money and relationships and pleasure and sex and jobs and entertainment and drugs and alcohol if not a crutch? Look, broken things need crutches. And we are all broken. The question becomes, what crutch are you grabbing? What's holding you up? What's supporting you? The good news of the gospel, Jesus came to bring comfort to those who mourn. And saying, blessed are those who mourn, Jesus is continuing to quote from Isaiah 61. In verses 2 and 3, Isaiah goes on to say, the Messiah came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. How to truly experience comfort, we first need to mourn. We need to drop the anger. We need to drop the numbing. And we need to run to Christ to experience true comfort So hear me on this. Rather than trying to purchase the cheap substitute of a comfortable life, why not receive the life that Christ himself purchased for you in which you will experience true comfort? Because here's what this passage in Isaiah promises. Here's what's behind the blessing that Jesus is saying in the the Beatitude. Saying that our mourning the things that cause us to mourn, the brokenness in ourselves, the brokenness in our world, God is at work to fix it. God is on a great redemption plan to fix what is broken. The fact that the kingdom has come means that God is restoring what is broken. That his rule and reign is going through this earth to restore and to heal. And here's the beauty of that. What this means is that Christianity is not a crutch. Christianity is an embrace. 
It's a shoulder. It's the loving arms of our heavenly father that are eternally strong, grabbing us and holding us and sustaining us. We have no crutch. We have a loving embrace that holds us in our brokenness. One that we can run to and find genuine comfort in, knowing that he's going to fix what is broken and he is fixing what is broken. And so when we mourn, what we are acknowledging is, is, Lord, I need you. Lord, I want your kingdom to come. I want to experience that grace, that mercy, that love, that forgiveness, that goodness that can only be found in you. Lord, I want your presence. I don't want anger because that's no comfort. I don't want stuff. I don't want people. I don't want sex. I don't want entertainment. I don't want drugs and alcohol and pornography. That's no comfort. Only you are a comfort. And so church, we can mourn in our brokenness. Let's mourn in our prayers, mourn in our singing, mourn with each other in community because we mourn so we can cry out that we may get God, we may experience his presence. We mourn as a way to long for the kingdom, knowing that it has come and will come. So we mourn in hope. So disciples of Jesus are poor in spirit. They mourn, and finally they're meek. Verse five, Jesus declares, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So let's first be clear what meekness is not. Meekness is not passivity. It is not self-pitying, navel-gazing, woe is me, that is nothing more than reverse pride. Because what do you do when you're throwing a pity party and you invite everybody to that party? Who's at the center of that party? You are. Self-pity, navel-gazing, that is pride. That is saying, look at me, woe is me. My problems are so great that even God can't fix them. Or I'm so special and lowly that he doesn't care about me. And so we can, we can believe ourselves to be meek and humble and lowly, but all it is is pride. Meekness is an attitude of humility that acknowledges poverty in spirit it embraces mourning. It sees us for who we really are, but it also acknowledges who God is and what he has done. So in many ways, we can say that meekness or humility pulls together poverty of spirits and mourning. So meekness has an accurate view of self. So it doesn't seek status or need approval and acknowledgement. It doesn't sort of like, hey, look how righteous I am. So when Mindy and I lived uh, in Virginia, it was very rare to get a Husker game on TV. And so when there was one on TV, I, I wanted to watch it. I wanted to make sure that I was able to watch it. Um, and so one Saturday, we're watching Nebraska play Wisconsin. Some of you probably remember this game. It was the game where Wisconsin rushed for the most yards in history in a, on a college football team. We were up 14 to nothing, and the next thing you know, it was like 56 to 4. It was horrible. Anyway, so we're watching this game, and Nebraska's still in the lead. Well, there were some friends in town that had moved away and come back, and so there was a, we were having a party for them, which we had committed to. And so the game's going, and I'm kind of dragging my feet, walking out the door, and Mindy's like, hey, we need to go, we need to go. And, and I'm kind of getting kind of frustrated because I want to watch the game. And then I, I turn to Mindy and I go, you're so lucky that I don't make Saturdays about college football. And she kind of looks at me like, I'm so lucky that you're going to keep your word that you committed to. Wow, I'm so lucky. In that moment, I wanted to be acknowledged for the fact that normally I don't make Saturdays about football. Look how good of a husband I am. I don't force you to stay home and watch football with me, or I don't make us rearrange our schedule to watch football. 
I, I, was, I was flexing. I wanted some acknowledgement. She wasn't having any of it like a good wife. <laughs> Humility does not seek status. Humility does not try to, hey, look at what I'm capable of. Look what I have done. Look at my righteousness. Aren't you blessed to be with me? Humility is being willing to not only acknowledge kind of in the private moments when I'm just me and the Lord, but being willing that when someone else calls us on our stuff, when we get exposed publicly that we're sinners, we say, yeah, you're right. We don't posture and fight back and huff and puff and try to get the pride up and go, oh, but here, you know, if you knew this reason, this is why I did this. And, you know, you got to understand this. It's just, no, you're right. I, I, I have been prideful. I, I am sinning. And so meekness doesn't seek status. It allows, it allows us to be exposed. And it also invites exposure, meaning It lives in such a way where people can see our sin and call us on it, correct us. We live in community in such a way where we don't hide things or we don't keep people at a distance where we're never able to be called out. Meekness invites correction. It invites discipleship. Meekness also recognizes its limitations, that it cannot fix what is broken In saying, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, Jesus is quoting from Psalm 37, 8 through 11. So if you look at the psalm, you get a little bit more context of what Jesus is getting at. This is what the psalm says. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. As I said earlier, how often do we go to frustration and anger when we can't fix something? How often do we fret? Do we worry? How often do our limitations cause us this unsettled, unstable interior world? And that gets manifested in, I've got to grab security. I've got to grab stability. I've got to go after things that are going to give me status and acceptance with people. The problem is, is we're limited. But our expectations are often that we don't think we're limited. Or we don't want to deal with problems anymore, so we do everything we can to get rid of them. Meekness recognizes limitations. Meekness doesn't strive for the stability of an inheritance that we construct and we build. It receives, it rests in, it waits for that inheritance that the Lord is bringing. Meekness says, Lord, you're fixing things. Lord, you're the one who is the hope of the world. You're the one that is going to fix what's broken in me and broken in everyone else. You're going to end suffering, end injustice, end evil. And so I can rest in that. When, my, when I bump up against my limitations, I don't have to go to anger. I don't have to run after status. I can acknowledge that I'm broken. I can acknowledge that in front of other people. And so there is freedom in meekness. There is a freedom that comes when we recognize that we are poor in spirit and we mourn the brokenness. There's a freedom that comes when we meekly and humbly walk before others. Hannah Anderson, in her book, Humble Roots, 
beautifully describes how meekness or humility brings these, all these threads together. This is what she writes. Humility teaches us that God is actively redeeming the world. And because he is, we can experience the relief of confessing our brokenness. Whether it is intentional sin or natural limitations or simply the weight of living under the curse, humility teaches us to find rest in confession, rest from the need to hide, the need to be perfect. We rest by saying both to God and others, I am not enough, I need help. And ultimately, that hu- the humility that leads us to confess our brokenness, both within and without, also frees us to grieve it and throw ourselves on the mercy of God. And this, more than anything, leads to rest. When humility expresses itself in godly sorrow, we can finally break down. We can finally let it all out. We can finally have that good cry. Good, both because it is a weeping, breath-sucking catharsis, but also because it is legitimate. Good, because it honestly faces the brokenness of the world while resting in something, someone greater. So meekness sets us free to rest, sets us free to accept the good kingdom, the inheritance that God is bringing. Fighting and striving for status and wealth and acceptance and prestige and security. We don't have to do that anymore. We don't have to angrily tear through political opponents and those who peddle false teaching and false hope. We don't have to rant on social media or get caught up in the frenzy hysterics of this social political cause that's one day and the next, the one that comes the next day. We can rest. We can confess our poverty of spirit. We can mourn our brokenness while at the same time, how we can serve others. As Jesus is going to go on to say, we, we get to be salt and light in this world. We get to serve for the good of others. We get to give our lives so that others may know Christ. And why we can do that in freedom is because we know our inheritance is secure. We're not trying to grab anything for ourselves. Everything has already been given us in Christ. And so we're set free. That's the power and the blessing of meekness. So disciples of Jesus long for the kingdom. They are poor in spirit. They mourn. And they are meek and humble. They see their own sin. They see the sin of the world and its brokenness. And they know they cannot fix it, but they know the one who can. The disciples long for the kingdom because it is their hope of redemption and healing and restoration. And friends, don't miss this. Jesus' pronouns are all plural, meaning we do this together. We are poor in spirit together. We mourn together. We are meek together. Because when we do that together, here's what happens. We put the kingdom of God on display. We testify to this world that a greater kingdom has come and there's hope and healing and restoration in that kingdom. And the Lord empowers us to go and testify that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then he calls all to repent and believe because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so when we do this together, the Lord uses us to powerfully declare what it means to be a disciple. Amen.